Welcome to Centering Centers, a pod network podcast that explores the work of centers of teaching and learning and the vision and insights of educational developers in higher education. The pod network is North America's largest educational development community, supporting members' professional learning through meaningful and sustained interaction. This podcast is an initiative led by the Digital Resources and Innovation Committee of POD. To get more involved in the DRI committee or this podcast, just send us an email at dri at podnetwork.org. Hello and welcome to Season 3 of Centering Centers. I'm Laura Becker at the City University of New York, and I will be hosting this mini-season of four episodes focused on the scholarship of teaching and learning with the educational developer audience in mind. Hello, Marsha. It's so great to have you uh, to speak with us on the Pod Network podcast about your scholarship of teaching and learning activities. Um, So welcome. Thank you. It's so great to be here, Laura, and congratulations on this wonderful podcast. I think we at Teaching Centers can learn so much from each other. I already have learned so much from listening to your other guests. Oh, it's wonderful. It's really such a strong and giving community, and it's just another uh, mechanism, you know, for people to, to hear from each other and to celebrate the work that happens. As we know, a lot of times centers are not exactly centered on their campuses, uh, and so this really brings more light to to your work. So tell us a little about you, Marsha, and and your background and how you got into educational development and, and, uh, and then a little about your center. Sure. Thanks, Laura. Well, I had um, my introduction to the field of learning science research is really the way I got my path in. And my focus there was originally quite theoretical, Um, you know, developing theory, developing models, uh, running experiments. And I moved from more laboratory practice to classroom-based practice and realized I really wanted to have this research make a difference for students. So as I was a junior faculty member and kind of wrangling with that impact, literally a position opened at my institution, Carnegie Mellon, where I am now. So I started my faculty career there and moved from predominantly a faculty role into a role at the teaching center. Um, And I haven't looked back. It's just (laughs) been great to to really take sort of um, this idea of research and evidence-based practice and try to make it accessible and applicable for faculty colleagues. I mean, I would think too, your insider knowledge as a faculty member helps so much, not only, you know, with the credibility uh, when you come to faculty with project and initiatives, but understanding the kinds of uh, research expectations and teaching load and all of that of your, of your colleagues. So tell us a little more about Carnegie Mellon for people who aren't familiar with the institution. Yeah, well, your your lead-in is very appropriate because Carnegie Mellon is a research-one, research-focused institution where we have undergraduates, master's students, and doctoral students. Um, Actually, our graduate students and undergraduates are about equal in number. Um, And for faculty at Carnegie Mellon University, really, I think um, in most cases, the... um, the criteria that really they're hired for and that they're promoted for 
is in the research arena. We also have a teaching track in addition to our tenure track where the focus is more on teaching. But um, in general, it's a very research focused institution, um, which makes me all the more proud that the Eberly Center um, as a support unit for folks um, educational roles um, has such a, a broad impact and we do connect with many faculty at Carnegie Mellon who, even though research may be their main focus, it, I get the sense that the vast, vast majority of them also want to be excellent in their teaching. Yes, and the, uh, the reputation of Carnegie Mellon, you know, for those of us on the outside, you know, we think of it, obviously it has a liberal arts, but it has a strong, uh, you know, STEM type orientation and uh, makerspace kind of, you know, activities. So I wonder how, well, oriented a lot of those faculty are to doing educational research, you know, to looking at their teaching as a subject area. Is that something that's relatively, um, I don't know, an area that you feel like the center can really help faculty understand that not only their main line of research um, in this, let's say in the sciences is of course, needed, uh, but also that they can publish in these other kind of formats around the teaching of their discipline areas. Has that been something that you've seen gain traction in the time you've been there or? Absolutely, Laura. I think um, really one of the things that's interesting is number one, there's a lot of research scholarship of teaching and learning, disciplinary based educational research in STEM areas. Um, mm -hmm. In large part because people have acknowledged there's a lot of room for improvement in student learning outcomes, so we should study that. Um, and so we have this body of literature that a lot of our uh, faculty colleagues at Carnegie Mellon may not have had exposure to, may not have um, uh, sort of disciplinary training, even in, in how to interpret and so forth, let alone conduct, um, not just be a consumer, but a producer of that work. So with that as a foundation, um, we, we saw a few years ago a, a variety of faculty members wanting to um, read more of that literature and sort of take a scholarly approach, like they might have a journal club in their discipline. They sort of um, were looking for that kind of support and we hosted a few special interest groups around how do we look at this research, interpret it, critique it, and, um, and learn from it. Um, and this group, this group of faculty members grew and shifted and they just wanted to keep meeting and meeting. It was really wonderful. And until suddenly they were um, as interested in reading other people's research as they were in trying it themselves. Mm. And so it became not just, oh, if I were doing that, I would do it differently. It became, maybe I could do that. And I could actually do the study um, in my course and make that um, a part of my own scholarship and a part of my own um, teaching improvement, teaching excellence. So from a special interest group, we went to recognizing that there was a real um, contingent of faculty members at Carnegie Mellon who wanted to do this work, um, but they didn't necessarily have the time, the support, the resources, and you know that's everyone's problem, right? So that's where we were kind of in thinking about well, there's a lot of literature already out there. 
our faculty, there's a, a good chunk of them who are interested in this, possibly even doing it themselves, but you know, how could they do this on top of everything else that faculty members are being asked to do these days? Yes, I, so it's interesting. So you feel, when you started out with those faculty interest groups, let's say looking at journal articles that were total pieces, let's say in different disciplines, did you have it in mind that that would lead to them eventually getting the depth and the familiarity so that they would try it themselves or it just kind of happened that way? It was very organic, Laura. It was actually quite wonderful because it was really driven by their interest. And this is sort of like I was saying, um, you know, I think I think of faculty members, regardless of their focus, as their truth seekers, right? They want to know and understand our world better, maybe mostly in their discipline. But then when they got into reading this literature that for some was quite new, others not so much, um, they just they they want really wanted to dig in. And so it was really based on their motivation and their drive that we said, okay, there's a felt need here, but the challenge was really around logistics. Like, how are they going to do it? How are they going to find the time? Um, how might they engage in some of the uh, study design or data collection and analysis steps in what we think of as social science and educational research if they're in STEM or if they're in arts um, mm -hmm. or humanities? Now, one thing I should say right up front is that when we think of this kind of teaching as research, that's the way we, we label it at Carnegie Mellon, sort of to make that connection to folks research foci, is um, that data should be conceived very broadly. It's not just numbers. There can be very many exciting and productive qualitative data collection um, opportunities in our courses. And so we really wanted to help faculty think about this in a broad way and pull in their disciplinary um, affinities and practices as appropriate and build on them. So do, did you have groups then that were mixed disciplinary wise yes. so that people who've never done qualitative or never done quantitative could sort of help each other? Um, how did you deal with the, you know, sort of the hegemony of, of quantitative research? Because um, that's always, a, I find, a challenge for people. They will dismiss the research that is not in, in, in especially when it's qualitative. <laughs> I so, agree. Yeah, how did yeah. you deal with that? <laughs> it is a challenge. And I will say the mixed groups were really useful because then it wasn't just us as the facilitators making the case for the value of both um, and mixed methods for that matter, but it was really the colleagues in the room having those conversations uh, from their disciplinary perspectives. So sort of by this point in the conversation, I should say we moved from a special interest group that was faculty driven to really transitioning to offering a, an annual uh, multi-day faculty institute where folks could come in, no prior experience in classroom-based research required. And it was sort of a, <clears throat> um, I don't know if this is appropriate word, but like a, an intensive on how to get into this work and we usually had a theme of some evidence-based practice and sort of linked the research to an instructional strategy or like active learning as sort of a, a bushel of strategies that mm -hmm. folks might want to pursue. And so in those conversations, um, as you alluded to, uh, the notion of, well, 
what's the best data to collect? Obviously, the qualitative versus quantitative question would come up. And like I said, we would look to the people in the room and we would try to sort of myth bust around quantitative um, being the only way or the, you know, the numbers have this strange power. You mentioned the hegemony. Um, <laughs> and I think that really we tried to break that down. That said, I will acknowledge it still is an area we see for improvement of pulling in more faculty to do this work with a qualitative bent. So um, it's something that we express ourselves. We're always looking for more faculty colleagues who would be comfortable with and really be seeking and would be a good match for their projects to do qualitative work. Um, I think one of the opportunities we're kind of hoping to leverage in improving in that dimension is to be looking at student experience and inclusive teaching interventions may be very effectively addressed through study with qualitative methods. Yes, uh, the, um, the, the sort of diet of readings that you select when you bring the faculty together, either in this intensive or you know, prior to that in the, in the groups, um, do you, have a kind of an approach of which pieces you might select for people to analyze and look at, or do faculty find pieces in their own disciplines to bring in? Uh, is there any library support um, in this process? Well, we haven't leveraged that yet, but um, tying into the, the pod network affiliation, you know, there is a SOTL SIG and there, there are great, um, um, websites with uh, scholarship of teaching and learning um, sources. We've drawn from that. And one thing we do that I think is um, pretty fun in our teaching as research institute is folks come back each day for, you know, some, some synchronous sessions. Part of the, the homework in between um, for between one of the two days is for them to read. We picked some relatively brief but yeah. really nice, um, comprehensive, like it shows the full cycle, the full arc of research, um, empirical papers, one or two, mm -hmm. and different disciplines, and they use different approaches, different study designs. And so we ask folks, you know, to read one or the other of these, and then we come back and we discuss them. So we've woven a little bit of that journal club feel into the Teaching as Research Institute. Um, and then we use that as a sort of a, a launching pad for, okay, now you've seen what this looks like by reading about it. We've talked about this instructional strategy that relates to active learning. What question do you have? And maybe then study design, data collection, et cetera, would you like to pursue in your course? Mm, okay. Uh, I think um... That's so helpful, you know, to to actually walk through pieces, published pieces, and sort of deconstruct them. Um, I wanted to ask you a little about the title, "Teaching as Research." Um, tell me about your thinking behind that, and I know there's some discussion about. Well, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of shades in you know in in the painting, but you know, looking at teaching as research uh sort of scholarly a scholarly lens on your teaching versus um, the scholarship of teaching 
And do you, how do you see that? And tell us a little about your, you know, your decision to choose the, this title. Yeah, well, um, we actually borrowed it from a book that has that title. And I think we really <clears throat> resonated with it for a few reasons. So number one, I think the idea of um, pulling teaching and research into a level set was one goal that we wanted to do to really um, make the commitment and acknowledge that teaching is scholarly. And like I said, Carnegie Mellon is a research one focused institution. Using the word research and um, putting that in juxtaposition with teaching we thought was really important. Mm. Um, I also think maybe a, one of the secondary goals is that um, the, the term scholarship of teaching and learning, and then there's DBER right. and there's learning science, these all have, um, maybe some of our faculty might not know some of those um, uh, acronyms or abbreviations, right. but also I think there's some um, ambiguity around scholarship of teaching and learning because it, it to my um, perception of the field, includes both pulling in evidence-based practices and implementing in them in your teaching, as well as designing a study and conducting research. So it sort of includes both the consumer yes. and the producer side of things. Whereas we really wanted to focus on, we wanna support folks to actually do this work. And in some cases, I'll admit when we share evidence-based practices, faculty may say, yeah, that's a good study, but that was done in another discipline. So I don't know if it applies to my students in my class, or that was done at another institution and not my students, not my classroom. So we really wanted to say, fair point. You know, We think a lot of this is generalizable and transferable, but ultimately it's an empirical question for each study to replicate across different contexts, learn more about the parameters that shape um, results from one situation to another. And so we wanted to basically empower folks to say, yeah, let's help you do that and answer that question in your context. Do you, have you taken the approach of um, faculty identifying uh, some initiative that was, you know, that they read about and actually doing kind of a replication study? Because I don't hear a lot about replication studies in in SOTL. Um, you know, you you have things that are similar, um, but not necessarily. I'm going to now try to do the exact thing that I saw someone else do because there's so many variables, you know, that make it really yes. hard to rep, really replicate something. But is that kind of like a, 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 I guess a pathway into to getting faculty to engage? Absolutely, Laura. I think one thing we do is we want to make it, we want to meet faculty where they are. So if what they want to do is sort of take an approach that they've read about or that has already been reported in the literature, um, I think it's a very powerful replication and extension to apply that to another course, even another discipline. And um, I should say that in our original special interest group and in our institute, the participants come from across all the colleges um, at Carnegie Mellon. So, you know, there's a lot of research on um, the effects of active learning in STEM. And, you know, we might pull one of those studies to discuss someone in the room who's a history teacher might say, 
I really like the study design, but the, the way it's been implemented doesn't fit my discipline, doesn't fit my pedagogy, but I can see a near analog that I just adapt that into my context and I can sort of get the best of both worlds. And I actually think that's a huge contribution to the literature um, to see how um, uh, an active learning intervention is applicable across context and how the study design is applicable across context. In addition to that, we also wanted to support and maybe even a little bit encourage folks to move into um, what some have called like the active learning meta-analysis by Freeman et al, second generation questions. So with active learning, I think there's a large body of evidence that active learning generally dominates lecture in uh, student outcomes, learning outcomes, passing rates, et cetera. Um, But that's sort of just the first generation question that's rather broad. What about unpacking that into why and how active learning has those positive effects? We also helped a lot of our colleagues who wanted to dig into some of those details and and really probe research questions that were at a, a second level of detail or a second generation, for example, in, is how I implement think pair share as an active learning strategy, does doing it this way versus that way have an impact? And if so, what, how, and what are the trade-offs? And we actually have had colleagues do that work with support from the Eberly Center, all the way to us helping them analyze and, and disseminate those results. And they've published this. So there've been literature contributions of the replication as well as um, very novel um, examples as well to, to, to kind of uh, going going further down the line of some of these uh, interventions how do you um, how do faculty get incentivized there how does it how does a publication like this um, uh, play in their tenure and promotion process it have you as a center engaged with those kinds of conversations on campus to to elevate the role to help people on PMBs or department chairs understand um, what this is as as a as valid research, um, and or you know is it financial? How do you get faculty to participate? <laughs> That's a great question. So um, really, our goal is um, the main hook that we offer is in breaking down the barriers and providing support, basically just the personnel support, the expertise support to really um, partner with and collaborate with faculty members. And so what we would like to say is, you know, we'll help you from soup to nuts, get this project done. Um, And for a lot of faculty members who want to do this work, it really is the logistics, the implementation that is a barrier that's just a stopping point. Um, One of the things that we've done in our work is partner with the um, Institutional Review Board and our registrar so that we can facilitate folks in sort of getting through some of those um, important steps, getting data in an appropriate way. Um, And so, you know, someone who is willing and able to do a lot of the steps, but that would just be too much we eliminate, almost eliminate, definitely drastically reduce some of those mm-hmm. effort points. Um, and then as well for folks who um, 
want help with the analysis or even you know they've they're um, maybe quite proficient in writing up um, research and scholarly and creative work in their discipline but they've never done this in educational research we partner with them on that as well um, but we're not looking for folks necessarily to get publications it's just as valuable in in our everly you know mission and vision that they're using these results and feeding them forward into their own their own work we do encourage folks to share with colleagues and um, what we'll do for a lot of these um, projects is we'll um, write it up in a website that we have at the Carnegie Mellon Everly Center site as a way of disseminating and um, uplifting the work yes, of colleagues so that they that can website. see that. I love that website. Um, listeners, we have the the um, the link to this page in our show notes and it's just beautiful it's very inviting there's a little photo image and link to uh, have people be able to to read and that's that going public part right of, of SOTL so in your community there it doesn't just stay with that faculty member who who tried something out and investigated it it, it really brings it um, publicly forward that must be very appreciated, this particular page, I would think, by the people who've done the work and also people who are thinking about it, um, right. coming to it. Right, yeah, I have to say, I I have a few favorite pages on our <laughs> website, and this is among the top three. I, I definitely love this page. And really, when you click on one of the project links, what I like is that we've put the faces of our colleagues there and really um, uplifted them uh, for doing this work. And we asked them to share a little bit, not just the, the documentation of the project, but to share a little quote about their experience doing this work, hopefully to inspire others. Um, we do have an annual teaching and learning summit that we host, the Eberly Center hosts at Carnegie Mellon. And we also try to highlight and spotlight this kind of work at that conference. And we've actually seen and, and overheard folks say, wow, if they can do it and, you know, the Everly Center makes it, maybe I could too. So it's really, I think, an inspiration from faculty colleague to colleague to say, this is, maybe this is more doable than I thought. And I'd really like to give it a try, engage and, um, you know, and not just benefit as an educator, but have students be the beneficiaries as well. Yeah, I, I I wonder too, um, I'm just going to circle back to the library question, not so just because I'm interested myself in um, how you archive, um, you know, the work. And um, it looks like your website is doing that. Um, when you have a, a faculty member who comes forward, let's say it's an art history professor and they want to do something with this. It have um, or what do you think could be a potential growth area or advice to other um, others of us at different centers where our libraries haven't really been that involved in these publications, but now that they're kind of accruing, it, it would be so nice just to go to a place to say, listen, everything that's published from my university's faculty in so any SOTL journal, because there's a lot of different journals and then there's the disciplinary ones. Can you have them all in one place or something? Because I don't. I do think, like you said, when faculty see not only that 
their colleagues have done this and published on it. But the consumer side of it, you know, when I'm looking to now teach this large format art history class, uh, it would be nice to see examples from, you know, my own students, something that is contextually right. relevant for me. Um, do you have any thoughts on that or? Well, I think that's a really great point, Laura, that um, we're really lucky at the Everly Center to have um, one of our teams is an assessment and data science team. So we can do some of that in-house, but not all centers may have in-house um, the, the personnel. So one thing that we have um, thought about as a more general uh, recommendation is partner with others mm -hmm. in, in doing this work. And you're so correct that the libraries um, at our institutions can be a great asset in um, surfacing the um, scholarship of teaching and learning work that's going on at the university, being a, a, a source to pull that together and make it visible, I think is what I'm hearing you say. The other thing is, I think partnering with um, maybe a, a university has a school of ed. We don't have that at Carnegie Mellon, but there yeah. could be other resources and um, um, areas of expertise and other units that could support this kind of initiative. Um, and I think um, from what I know and have experienced in educational research, it's the kind of thing where it's, it's really often a passion for folks and they're so excited to help each other. So I could well imagine that these partnerships would be really productive with a school of ed or maybe yes. a learning science department, the libraries, uh, like I said, we partnered so productively with our registrar and IRB to reduce some of the barriers. Um, I think those partnerships have been helpful to us and could be for others too. Oh, the IRB is critical. Just, just briefly, with the registrar, what, what do, what, what does that look like? What are they offering? Um, so one thing that um, we run into a lot in um, empirical research where someone wants to make a comparison, if they had an intervention, um, they can't always or, or wouldn't necessarily be an appropriate study design to have two treatments within the same semester. So sometimes what we're doing is we're looking to um, have a comparison group that's maybe a past semester or like across semesters. And so, or even just to look at um, some uh, some data that we might encourage folks to disaggregate mm -hmm. the, um, the given class in terms of looking for equity of outcomes or something like that. So the registrar is our source of authoritative information on students' academic records and some of the students' um, demographics, their identity characteristics that might be really important data and variables to include mm -hmm. in this work. Um, the challenge is you know, we want to be mindful of FERPA, protect students' um, privacy, and so forth. And so what we did is it's a little bit um, of a multi-step process, but we have a, a way for our registrar to de-identify the data. And then the Eberly Center is playing the role of an honest broker to yeah. combine data from like the grade book from the instructor and some of those academic records from the registrar so that um, they're de-identified, but can be paired. Right, coded and then re-aggregated. Re yes. that's, yes. that's brilliant. That's really, really, really amazing. That's a great, a great um, service, a tremendous service, um, because um, 
finding out those things usually has to become part of the study design of the faculty themselves. Otherwise, because there's no way to ever access it. Um, I'm laughing silently thinking of my registrar trying to do that. Um, but in some centers or in smaller institutions, it might be really quite realistic and something that people haven't thought of asking for. Um, you know, so this is a great, brilliant tip. Well, yeah. and you make me think of another partner is institutional research. I was just talking to a colleague at another center, um, smaller center of one, and yeah. she's the director there and who is um, partnering with institutional research for really, really positive aims. And they're so delighted to be contributing in this way. And the faculty members then can pull in the data that they need to do this kind of work, whether it's for formative or research purposes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, that's, that's so, it, it, it makes it, it makes everything about a center um, data informed, you know, when you're planning programming and you have no idea really about institutional research and, and student learning outcomes in your institution. Um, unfortunately, a lot of us do operate that way because there really isn't that integration. So it's so, so helpful. And, and it's so appreciated, Marcia, for you to explain that to us because what has been built up by you with these relationships and these other units, it can give us ideas, as you said, inspiration of things that we could try out um, and push forward because uh, as you said, it's always a challenge for faculty who have a lot of research expectations in their own discipline to take this very far. Um, and so it's instead of sort of saying at the reflective practitioner stage, this is much more in depth, much more rigorous uh, and gives, gives back to, um, to all the authors out there of, of SOTL um, work that I find often doesn't get read. It doesn't get consumed the way it should. And so I think these are really great ways to harness all of that. And there's so much of it, especially now with the pandemic, there's this big natural experiment. That yeah. <laughs> so there's just a lot out there. It can be overwhelming. So you kind of selecting pieces is really, really helpful. Um, Marcia, anything else you wanna say before we wrap up? Well, I guess, you know, I just think you raised a really good point that we really also in doing this work can be thinking about how to make it more consumable. Um, and in some sense, that's a little bit why I really like our website because yeah. we're not saying you come into this and you have to write a journal article, but if you come into this work and you're willing to have us help you craft a, a few paragraphs, maybe we put a graph up there. Um, then, you know, in a quick few minutes, a faculty member can browse and see a few projects and get a sense of what this work is like and what it can do. And so I think that's a really important takeaway as well, that just making this, my vision is that this kind of work would be standard operating procedure for all faculty, not because I want to add a burden, but because we as a system in higher education, make it so smooth and natural that it just, it's the way we do business. That's my goal. Yeah, well, that is a great spot to end on. And um, the way we do business and being truth seekers, these are really wonderful thoughts to walk away with. So as you are listening to this, if you're taking a walk or 
doing your laundry or cleaning your kitchen, listening to our podcast. Marsha and I really thank you. And we love that the pod network gives us such a great uh, forum, you know, to share, uh, especially around um, SOTL or Deber or SEER and all the acronyms, as you said, it's really about informing our practice based on research and being part of a research community in, in what we do. So thank you so much, Marsha. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Laura. It's great to be here.